the new autograph is a DM on Twitter. And that really resonated with me because the idea of, you know, yeah, I mean, autographs are still popular and they're still cool. But if I got a DM from, you know, Aaron Judge right now, that would be the, that would be cooler, in my opinion, than, you know, standing, you know, outside the stadium and having him, you know, rub his pen across a piece of paper that I get to take home with me, right? Because it's, it's a personalized exchange where you literally connect with someone. And, you know, a lot of social media, even if it's not that personal and not a direct message, has that feeling of intimacy. Hello, I'm Katie Kuffel, one of the machines behind this podcast. And I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid & Grits founder and CEO. We have a doozy of a guest here today, one I wouldn't be surprised if you already knew. He joined Scopely as employee number 23 in business development and helped it to grow to the juggernaut it is today. Later, he was the SVP of business development at Scopely until he transitioned to the position of chief product officer at One Team Partners, where he helps athletes in the NFLPA, MLBPA, and other world-class players' associations maximize the value of their image and likeness rights in the game space and beyond. Our guest is none other than Henry Lowenfels, and he is one of the most connected folks in gaming. So where does this powerhouse see the future of mobile entertainment going? How does he parse out what information to consume in order to understand the market? We'll learn all that and more on this episode of Creators at Work. You're at this amazing intersection of sports and mobile, which I think are obviously the two, probably the two biggest entertainment sources. Let's talk about some of the things that you think are going to happen. And and I know this is pretty open-ended. We can go far out. And I I think we should, you know, I mean, where do you think these are going? and, And what are some of the forces that are going on that you're seeing? that you think contribute to this? I'm dating myself because I don't think people really talk about this uh, anymore. But, you know, for years, the idea of of Web 2.0 was was a popular idea around a lot of what was happening socially and, and, and some of the new forms of media that were coming about. You know, I was thinking about this question before we hopped on, and I think we're entering into what I would call digital living, maybe digital living 2.0, or, you know, if, if we're kind of evolving there. And if you look at what's really happening, you know, with things like Roblox or Twitch, or even now more currently NBA Top Shot and, and Clubhouse, which we touched on. You know, these are all these personalized social digital spheres where people, yes, it's been accelerated by COVID, but even without it, hang out, you know? And there's a lot of talk about the metaverse. Everyone's, you know, is Fortnite going to be the metaverse? And, and, and we're not there yet. I, I am of the belief that I don't really think we ever truly get there. I don't think we're all going to, you know, put on a VR headset when we wake up, you know, in the extreme version of it all and, and go ready player one, and, you know, live in, live in a digital world. But I do think that we will continue to spend more and more time in what I would call these digital spheres, you know, and, and it may not just be one and, and they may be disconnected. But whether you're buying packs of cards and NBA Top Shot and then going and interacting in the marketplace with others and talking on Discord about it with those same, you're in a digital sphere. You have effectively either a handle or an avatar, an identity, you know, and you are personalizing and effectively curating your own experience, you know. So where I see this going is that 
whether it's Zoom, you know, for for day to day business meetings, or or Roblox for you know a ten year old hanging out with his friends after school, you know, we are just living more and more online. It sounds kind of obvious, but but it really is about. I think now today, it's everyone wants a digital identity, and everyone wants a powerful one. And kids look up to Ninja and say, "That's what I want to be." And adults look at you know the the Andreessen folks on Clubhouse and say, I want 2 million followers on Clubhouse and or, or notoriety on Instagram or, you know, to, to lead a clan in Clash Royale or, or whatever it may be. And it's all around a digital brand and a digital persona that, that people are building. You may even have distinct multiple versions depending on where they sit. But, but that is really where I see media heading. And I know you touched on in some of your earlier podcasts around personalized content, but I, I truly believe in that. I think you know, in its simplest form, it's, you know, you open up your mobile game, this isn't simple, but you open up your mobile game and you get the experience exactly catered to what you want. You like playing by yourself. Why show you tournaments and PVP modes, you know, just show you the single player mode. Like, you know, that, that's the simple version in the more complex version. It's, you know, your own curation that you don't even really think about it that way. It's, it's the, it's the front page on, on, of apps on your phone. You know, what do you, what are you touching and opening every day? And, and how do you personalize those via the location you're in, via your social graph, via, you know, just your, your interests? Um, I think that that is really generally where media is heading. And how do stars fit into that, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're focused on right now. And I think that's interesting because if, if I get the version of branding for Brett, right, which has this potentially this ceiling of how big it can get. How do stars like Derek Jeter and all these other people play into this, this new world? It, there's not a, a simple answer to that, but I mean, I've, I've kind of continued to use the word digital brand and persona, you know, and, and these are effectively folks who have a big head start on that due to their notoriety and the fans that they have. Right. So I, I think that they have the ability to almost, you know, use their celebrity as a platform to accelerate their reach in, in these digital worlds. And then from the consumer perspective, you know, someone said about a decade ago to me that the new autograph is a DM on Twitter. And that really resonated with me because the idea of, you know, yeah, I mean, autographs are still popular and they're still cool. But if I got a DM from, you know, Aaron Judge right now, that would be the that would be cooler, in my opinion, than, you know, standing, you know, outside the stadium and having him, you know, rub his pen across a piece of paper that I get to take home with me. Right. Because it's it's a personalized exchange where you literally connect with someone. And you know, a lot of social media, even if it's not that personal and not a direct message, has that feeling of intimacy because you are choosing to follow a certain person and they're oftentimes letting you into their bedroom or to parts of their life that you might not have seen even 5, 10, 15 years ago. So the the ability to access directly celebrity and people you look up to, or even in smaller spheres, just people within your industry that like to be able to connect with someone on LinkedIn and, and have a back and forth, that was not possible when you used to live in New York and, oh, I got to go fly out to Sand Hill to go meet this guy. And they're not going to, how do I even get a meeting? And I, I don't even know how that worked, to be honest, you know, which sounds crazy. Like, what did you like? look him up in the phone book and, and, and try to call his landline when he was there. Like, how did, you know, so I think it just enhances the ability to, to connect directly. And, you know, what that does to the industry overall is it just opens up new possibilities and new forms of content and media that I think we haven't even really touched on. I and mean, clubhouse is a really interesting and good example of that. How intimate does it feel 
when you're wearing your AirPods and, and someone's talking in your ear, I mean, I feel this way about podcasts. You know, I joke with some of the, the my friends who run podcasts that I listen to when I'll see them at a dinner party or whatever. It's like, you've been whispering sweet nothings in my ear for the last, you know, year, year and a half. And it's a really, I mean, it's funny, but it's, it's true. Like I'm out on my morning run, you know, I have someone who, whose voice I recognize feels like he's talking just to me that I've chosen to, to load up onto my device and listen to. I think it all kind of comes together and, and just as a real, you know, technology is a real enabler in, in a sense of bringing you closer to in my case, athletes, but but really overall celebrities and and different different brands. So what you're kind of saying is scaling personal touch, right? Like we all want to have that moment where we get an autograph. I got an autograph. I waited outside and got an autograph from Wayne Gretzky when I was a kid after practice. And I mean, I can remember that to this day, right? Like we followed, I think we followed the bus from the old New Haven arena to like the practice facility or something. And I was sitting out there and got it. That moment I'll never forget, more so than I'll ever remember watching him play or any of that stuff, right? And what I think you're trying to say, which makes a lot of sense, it's somewhat why I think we're doing the podcast, is you're scaling that personal moment, right? You want to be able to touch all of the the fans that you have, right? Wayne Gretzky or whomever. But how do you do it without sitting outside the bus for 10 hours for Wayne Gretzky would be a thousand hours signing autographs. Right. And the the technology is allowing it so that you can have a closer experience to that, but at much larger scale, right. Where you're going in their living room, you're talking to them, you're listening to them. You're having, I mean, if I had a conversation with Wayne Gretzky right now and he was sitting next to me, I hope I don't talk at all. So what's the difference between me listening to him on a podcast versus actually talking to him, right? Like I, I wouldn't waste a second. And I think everybody has that, experience in their lives in some form. I, I vividly remember getting a baseball at a Yankee game from Pete Incavilia, the then uh, left fielder for the Texas Rangers. And, you know, like the fact that I remember, I remember standing there and, and my dad told me this was a good idea to say, Mr. Incavilia, Mr. Incavilia, try to be like a cute little like seven-year-old or whatever it was. And, and, you know, what, I think what you'll see 20 years from now with my kids is my kids will say something like, Oh man, that was so cool when I was watching Austin on Twitch and he mentioned me, you know, a comment I made in the chat, you know, it's like, it's, it's kind of the same thing. It just allows for different level of scalability and access. One thing that I've been seeing a potential shift in is advertising. Like I am a big YouTube premium subscriber. I basically can't watch TV anymore because I go bananas when I see an ad. I'm just so annoyed. Like, I just can't even sit through one. IDFA is obviously coming out, and that's a big thing in the mobile gaming space. Where do you think advertisement and advertising industry goes in the next, you know, three years with all the changes? I'm certainly not the expert on this. And I remember um, when Gabe Wayden gave that now semi-infamous uh, recode talk about how everything was turning into performance marketing. And I, I would, I was you know, hook, line, and sinker, all, all about that. I love that concept because especially where I was sitting at the time, Scopely, you know, the idea of not tracking marketing was with, or tracking user behavior and, and being able to be very precise about, you know, who is doing what in your game and where they came from um, was just almost foreign to me. And it's like, wow, that's so backwards to not do that. 
Look, I think that now with new privacy regulations and, and things that are happening, IDFA is just the beginning, in my opinion. It's likely Google follows, and and you probably see more backlash against you know certain types of personalized advertising. I think that it it sort of we're back to the days where where product marketing and brand marketing matters a lot more, you know, and brand brand positioning. And you know, this was was in fact part of my calculus in coming to one team being on the side of what I would consider to be some of the most powerful IP in the world right now, the NFL players, MLB players, other athletes we represent, it's going to be important to have that natural reach because it's not just going to be a data science game. I still, I think that it will always continue to be more and more a data driven approach, regardless of what tools are there. People are always going to want to use the data and they should to be as, as smart and efficient as they can from a marketing perspective. But I'm seeing a renewed interest in what I call traditional product marketing around brand positioning, around top of funnel awareness, messaging, and, and really, you know, just sort of the consistency of it, you know, not just around launching a new product, but around sort of the long tail, um, you know, to, to really evolve the, the, the product positioning and, and make it feel fresh and new. And it's not just one message, but, but it's going to continue changing and, and evolving over time. Yeah, we, I've got to do a podcast on this, but I'm actually bullish on the IDFA change. I mean, all change in mobile gaming has always been good. I mean, I know it's scary out there and I understand that it changes scary. And for a lot of people, it can be, you know, negative, but what we've continually seen in mobile gaming is that change is good, right? I mean, that there's going to be new opportunities. And I, I think that when you think about the way that that all worked through Facebook, I mean, I think the big winner on all that was Facebook because it was basically a perfect market and it was getting closer and closer to a perfect market where there, there was barely any profit left. Right? I mean, it had all the data. I mean, you think of a perfect market, tons of competition, tons of data points, super fast changing and a lot of data, right? So you're basically getting to the margins. And the only person that was, I think, really winning on that was Facebook. So in many ways, I think this is the ripping the bandaid off that the gaming industry kind of needed to do anyways, eventually, which was try to find other ways to get users and do it in a high quality way, right? And do it in the classic way of we have a great product. This is a great product for you. Please come enjoy it. And and this is what you're going to get. And, and we're going to build a trusting relationship between the product and the individual. Like, I know it, it again, I want to be sympathetic to all the changes that go on internally at a company. I know that's super difficult, but at the same time, I feel like this is going to have positive impacts, particularly the game industry, which is always amazing at adapting and finding the next big thing. You know, I don't know if I fully agree, but I, but I, I don't totally disagree either. It's, it's, it's the first time I've heard someone be kind of that forthright and bullish around, you know, this, this, what is, yeah, a very, a very scary change for a lot of people that's coming. It's certainly going to change the dynamic. I mean, what, what that called to mind, as you were saying, it was, you know, what I know to be true from my time at Scopely, regardless of the hundreds of millions of dollars that the company spends on performance marketing is that the best marketing is word of mouth. And, you know, you're seeing that with, with influencer marketing and, but I think even beyond like influencer marketing at scale, like, yeah, having Ninja is, is really interesting, you know, and, and obviously reaches a ton of eyeballs and you pay for it, but having a bunch of micro influencers that feel more like your friend that you've gone out of your way to follow as, as opposed to, you know, like everyone's listening to, you know, the, the, 
the top 40. Right. But like, if you're going to go see the indie concert, like you're going out of your way to get the ticket because you love the indie rock band and you're saying you're like a real fan and everyone's like in the audience. It's like, those are the micro influencers have that intimacy going back to that direct relationship and that word of mouth. And so, yeah, I, I think that there's going to be a big shift. What I do agree with is the people who, who think that this is the end and especially the end for some of the biggest and most profitable games. I mean, whether it's social casino or, or high LTV, you know, mobile four X MMO type experiences, it's not the end for those games. You know, it's, it's certainly not there. Those games work really well. They retain really well. They're going to find their audience in, in new ways. Was awesome to have you on here, Henry. Is there any other any other things you want to predict? You want to throw out like a last minute prediction on uh, where the puck is going in terms of the media industry? You know, I, I, I I've thrown out a handful. I, look, I, I think it's just going to continue to be more of a personalized game. You know, and and I also think you know maybe one last one because you and I have talked about this. I think it's all becoming a game. You know, we sit here in the games industry, and it's easy to say, but when we were on that clubhouse chat last night we were, you were texting me, is this a game or is this, is clubhouse just a game? And it kind of is, you know, there's stats and leaderboards to a certain extent around how many followers you have and it's social and you're, you're interacting and you're talking. And, and by the way, when I was raising my hand to try to speak, like my heart started to beat kind of like, you know, uh, when someone's about to pass you the puck in hockey or, or like, or when you're, when you're playing, you know, world of Warcraft with a bunch of, you know, you got to do something. It gives you that, it gave me that rush, you know, and that, and, and if I spoke and it felt good, I probably would have gotten that dopamine. And so it all, I think all media is turning into that and they're all, everything's converging in that way. So it's, it's a really exciting time to be working in any form of media, let alone games and sports. So, you know, I feel very fortunate. We were really excited to get to some of Henry's predictions, so we ended up switching around the order of our questions and editing. So you are about to hear the beginning of our actual conversation, where Henry goes into his methodology and his approach to sifting through information, to business, and in a lot of ways, to life. Now you're doing super awesome partnerships with the NFLPA and all these other awesome organizations in this connection between the individual and, and leveraging the individual in, in the entertainment space. How do you think that you, you figure these things out? I mean, that you're, you're kind of staying on top of it. There was one good answer here because that would make everyone's lives a lot easier. And there's not. Tell us the one answer, just, just one word. And then we'll just turn this podcast off. Okay. (laughs) Look, if I can, if I can distill it as simply as possible, I think the the best answer I can give you is that you need to be an information sponge and 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 a learning machine. So it's not just about collecting information, but it's about collecting information and be willing to allow that information to change your opinion and retriangulate the way you think about a particular business, medium, segment of the economy, whatever it may be. And I think that's the key. Like the the willingness and almost desire to be proven wrong is is something that I really pride myself on. And so when you're out there talking to people, trying to absorb new ideas and understand, you know, new ways of thinking about business, you know, it's not just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's what that guy does. And that's what that guy does. It's like, that's what that guy does. What, what implications does that have on the way that I'm going about my day to day? And oh, by the way, this other really smart person is doing something totally differently and they're both really successful. Can you bring those, are those two things complementary? Are they different? Are they in conflict? And, and what does that actually mean for your reality? So yeah, I think, look, to, to use a baseball analogy, because, you know, we were 10 minutes into this and I haven't used <laughs> one yet, um, you know, and that's my favorite sport. Um, 
you need to see a lot of pitches in order to know which ones to swing at, you know? And so getting those reps and, and having the ability to pick up that pitch immediately when it leaves the, the pitcher's hand, you know, to understand what good looks like early on, then you can be a little bit more cutthroat in how you spend your time and what you choose to, to learn and, and to put inside your brain. Cause you, you have a finite amount of time and energy to, to learn all this stuff. You know, you, you need to see a lot to get there. So it really is about, I think, absorbing as much as you can and then being thoughtful with that information and really, you know, going deep on what the implications are. And to keep the analogy going, what what kind of edge do you have? Like, where where are the, the trash can sounds get hit, or does the back <laughs> office like computer system tell you like what? Like, let's get into the like. Do you have a process because there's a human bias to go find data that's going to support your pre existing opinion, right? And so, do you? Take notes, write down. I mean, I have a decision framework, for example, that I sometimes use with big decisions. Or is it just that, you know, you've done this long enough that you're just being the sponge, you're thinking about stuff and then kind of going with what you think is right? One thing, it's a decent memory. And so I think that's really helpful. I, you know, I think that's why I did okay in school. School is effectively a memorization game. And so if you you can remember a lot of stuff, then you're going to be okay. Like, why did I do well in ninth grade biology? I just remembered what the teacher said. I wasn't some, I never, you know, that was, that was the end of my biology career, but I was able to remember the genus and species of a bunch of different animals. And, you know, I can, I can do okay on the biology SAT. So I think that kind of applies to my day to day. You know, you're talking to so many different people and I found myself using mental cues quite often around, um, and it's harder in COVID actually around location uh, what people are wearing and and even what people are eating as a way of remembering what we're talking about. So I can remember specific conversations. I remember a conversation with you when we were in that, that Mexican joint at GDC and I remember the burrito I was eating, you know, and that's a weird thing, but, but I remember like, I'm like, Oh, right. I was having the burrito and Brett and I were talking about social casino, you know, and it's like they, these, these things kind of fit together and there are these cues that you have. And then, jog your memory and bring it back. So I think that's, that's one thing that I was, I was fortunately blessed with, but really beyond that, you know, my grandparents were first generation immigrants. Uh, I'm Jewish, you know, it's sort of this underdog mentality was, was instilled into me as something that was really important. And, um, you know, when you control so little in this world, you know, you can't control the way an audience is going to react to something. You can't control the economy. You can't control who you're going to run into on the street. The one thing you can control is your output. The one thing you control is the hours you put in. The one thing you control is how hard you try. And so that that is really what I look to. When I wake up in the morning, it's like, okay, what what am I going to do today? Well, I know I'm going to give it my all and leave it all on the mat. And you know, it can be it can be a punishing existence in that way because you 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 do run the risk of burning yourself out and I'll say, I'll admit that I'm not so great at slowing down. You know, I'm not so great at turning it off and it, it can drive people crazy, you know, in more social settings, like take my wife, for example. Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard for me sometimes to, um, to turn it off, but, but that's also a blessing. So it's, it's, it's that combined, I think with, with maybe the, the memory that that's helpful to me in, in getting there in terms of a decision-making framework, I'll be honest, I don't really have one, you know, it really is much more about allowing my mind to go down certain paths and explore them and really sort of like feel them 
in a sense. Um, I, to go back to my wife for a second, I was thinking about this before we, we got on here. And, you know, it, this drives her crazy because I do it with everything. Like, hey, it's Saturday night. What do you want to eat tonight? I don't know. Well, Chinese sounds good. Like, that would be kind of good. Or, well, Sushi's, we haven't had sushi in a while. And, oh, there's that new Indian place. And, she, and that might be, we haven't ordered that thing from that. And she's like, what do you want? Just choose. It's dinner. I'm like, like yeah, I know. But, like, there's all these options. And so, so I, I actually enjoy that process. And I do it verbally quite often, which is my teams who I've worked with in the past will, will tell you that I, I am, uh, you know, definitely a verbal thinker. Uh, so, so I, I think it out, I talk it out and just sort of feel what, what it might be like and make my best assessment. You know, I'm going to bring in my wife in the conversation too, because that's something I loved about my wife actually. And her family is their ability to deliberate on decisions. And it, I've always been really impressed by it. I mean, in the beginning I was like your wife, Toby, like I was like, this is driving me batty. Like I can't, I cannot take like an hour to decide where we're going to go eat. But then I started to really appreciate when it was applied to things that were a little bit more valuable than our dinner. Like when we were buying a car, I mean, it was like Excel spreadsheets and Google docs and seeing every single car and every single dealership and then negotiating every single thing. When we bought a house, it was the same way. And I was really impressed by that. And I loved it again for higher value decision-making stuff. It, it is such a, a wonderful trait that I've taken from, from my relationship with my wife. You know, stereotypically, a lot of Jewish people become lawyers. That There is, there is a real connection there. And, and I think if you like, I grew up studying the Talmud, you know, and you study these, these really dense Jewish texts and it's like these esoteric questions and examples and, and, and thought exercises. Like, but if the man has seven goats and it's the Sabbath and he needs to deliver the goats across, like, what does he do? It's like, I mean, it's ridiculous stuff that you talk about, but it, it develops your, this way of thinking in your mind and exploring different situations and assessing a problem set and then making a decision. And there's oftentimes not just one right answer. It's, Oh, well, this Talmudic scholar interpreted it this way and lights the Hanukkah candles from left to right. And this one interpreted it this way and lights the Hanukkah candles from right to left. And they're both right. They're both valid, but they come at it from different angles and you only get there via real exploration in your mind. I started learning Hebrew in, in first grade um, and study Hebrew from first to eighth grade and actually could speak reasonably well for a time. Unfortunately, I didn't practice it that much. So it takes, you know, four days in Tel Aviv and, you know, more than a few beers. And then I can, you know, string a few <laughs> sentences together. But, uh, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't flow supernaturally. I can understand. It. But I think it was language. And then I and then I ended up uh, minoring in Spanish in college. So I spent a lot of time. Um, I think language is actually pretty helpful. I studied music. I played piano. I did a lot. You know, I think that's also the thing. Like, I, even from a young age, I, I played sports. I played music. I studied language. It was like, I, I remember even going into high school and, and wanting to do everything. My freshman year, I was a three-sport athlete. I was on the debate team. I was in the band. I did, And, like, I ended up having to cut a few things. I, I think that that's, at times, it feels a little unfocused. And there were even times in my career where I felt like a generalist because I didn't really have a core skill set. I couldn't say I am a product manager or I know, you know, I do this one specific thing really, really well. I've always thought of myself kind of as a, a, a very shallow lake 
And then I need wells to work with. I need people who are really, really deep in certain areas. I know enough to be dangerous. I can talk about a lot of things at a high level, and that's part of the learning process. But then, you know, to to really go deep in a certain area, you need that domain expertise. Well, going back to the original question, do you think, because I, I was brought up similarly, I mean, I played hockey, I played the flute, edit, you know, edit that out, Katie, but I was a big flute player. I, my parents were obviously, were into academics and, and also sent me to camp. Like my, my mom was like, you can't play hockey at all for the next two months. Like you have to go rock climbing and kayaking. Do you think going back to that question of how to see what's around the corner, where the puck is going, do you think that's important in connecting the dots where you're not just looking at mobile gaming? Like you're just not just staring down at the sensor towers and and, and those tools, and but you're also incorporating what you're learning in the New York Times, what you're learning in baseball, what you're learning in all these other areas of your life to kind of come at this decision. Not only that, but now I know why Jeff Rotel was always blasting in your dorm room whenever I came to oh, say <laughs> <laughs> uh, james no, galway, uh, james uh, galway uh, actually he was a legendary flutist uh. uh no seriously though no I, I, absolutely and i think that you know people get really um caught up in what they're doing or what they love and it's very easy uh especially if you're a very focused person maybe unfortunately not I, my mind kind of goes everywhere all the time but if you're a very focused person and you love something you it's super easy to be like i'm gonna go incredibly deep on games. And that can be really valuable. Again, like I said, you know, I work with those kinds of people and need those kinds of people to be able to do my job effectively. And I think in some ways, those people need folks like me and you who maybe are, are a little bit broader in our knowledge, maybe with less depth in certain areas, but yeah, no, absolutely. I love the idea of a liberal arts education and it's because it teaches you how to think doesn't teach you what to think, doesn't necessarily teach you facts, but it teaches you how to think. And it enables your brain to go from, you know, math to science to, to social issues, to reading, reading a, you know, 600 page novel that was written 200 years ago to, you know, and, and, and having that ability to jump around and then connect the dots of, oh, okay, there's, there's this principle that we were talking about, you know, in my English class, which actually applies to my philosophy class. And, hey, that's actually sort of scientific if you really think about it, the way that they came to that hypothesis. So it, it all does connect. And, and not only does it make you a more interesting individual to talk to and, and hang out with, which is actually pretty important in the business world, but it also, I think, enables you to question beliefs and you know just be willing to be proven wrong and be willing to, and, and actually almost seek it out. Because if you're, you're right that the human brain does have the bias towards the echo chamber and wanting to be validated and proven right. But if you can, if you can intentionally turn that on its head and you can intentionally say, okay, here's what I believe. I'm going to go try to be proven wrong. You, you learn so much in the process. You may end up with the same belief. You may say, well, you know what? That's cool. But, and, and that, that was a principle that I actually probably first learned in, I think it took me really until college to articulate it in, I was an English major and in English, it was like, you need to make the argument, the opposite argument in order to prove your own. You know, you, you need to be able to understand what the other side is going to say or thinks and respect it, not just not just understand it and say, well, it's wrong, but say, look, I can understand how someone might think X. And that's, you know, very valid. However, because of A, B and C, I think Y, you know, and so it's it's it sort of turns it on its head and it makes you more credible and believable because you're you're not just saying hammering someone with with the truth that you believe you're acknowledging that your truth may 
not be perfect and that there are other ways of thinking about this, but this is why you believe what you do. Yeah, the FBI actually has a process. Research department here. When Brett says FBI, he really means to say CIA. Research team out. Eating hypotheses, which it's actually online. You can read up on it, but they talk about how they've created the system to answer ambiguous and difficult questions. And one of the keys to it is that you prove hypotheses wrong as opposed to proving them right. So you list your, I mean, the simple version is you list your hypotheses and then you get, go gather a bunch of data points that basically eliminate the weaker conclusions, the weaker hypotheses until you get at the last hypothesis. And that ends up being the thing that is likely to happen. And it's not the other way around that we so often do, which is prove something right. It's you go and prove all these other data points wrong. I love that. I've never heard about that. It's that's really cool. Yeah, uh, I've used it a bunch in gaming. We we actually use it on a lot of our consulting projects where we're trying to help people predict where the market's going and things like that. We we basically just eliminate the the weakest options to get to the strongest one. There's also a bunch of other really cool techniques, like they get a a group of analysts in a room and they all list hypotheses, so it's not just one person's opinion. And, and do a bunch of other things to remove. And it's, again, on the FBI website. You can look it up right now. That's interesting. So going back to one of your questions, which it just jogs something in my mind about how I make decisions. And I sort of touched on this with the idea of exploring stuff, but I also make lists. And, and I think you actually may have may have told me to do this at one point in my life. I'm, I, I'm pretty sure it came from you, actually, Brett. What were you where, eating at the time? What were you eating I, at the time? I, 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 okay, so... Weirdly, I was I was driving on the 101 North. I remember where I was going and okay. n- sort of n- near what exit. I, I'm not joking. Like it was a memorable moment, and I I remember talking to you on on my car Bluetooth. And yeah, so uh, yeah, COVID keeping me in my house and screwing my memory. Yeah, no, I, you know, if you make a list of everything, you know, everything that you could possibly do, like just to create from the craziest ideas to you know the things that are just right in front of you. You know, it, it's a really helpful exercise to to explore all those things, and and you know, you might find one that sounds crazy initially. Um, I even think that you know, I I, I did this, and at, at one point more recently, and I was like, I can move to Nashville. Oh, I'm never going to do that. That's that's a silly. But then you, you you have it out there, and it's in the ether, and it's and and it's sort of like floating around in your brain, and it's there to access if you wanted. And then oh, by the way. COVID hits and, you know, you're living in a, a 1700 square foot house with three children and you're like, yeah, I'm going to move to Nashville. That's I'm glad I put that on that list. So it's, so it's important to get that out and explore all those options in that way. And yes, I am crediting you, Brett, with my move to Nashville. So thank you. You you do have a great memory that is from me, and that is a system I use where you think before you do that, that the, the possibilities are infinite, right? There's a million things that are going to happen. And when you just put it on a list, general things that I talk about or think about, it, it comes out to about 10 to 14 possible things. And when you throw it on a piece of paper, it gets out of your head of this, oh my God, there's just so many possibilities. And I think in our example, it was like, well, what, what's going to happen next? Or what are we going to do next? Or where are you going to move? Right. And that gets you out of your head. And then actually a bunch of those things in that list end up getting cut off in the first day. So what you do is you spend a time amount, like a a day, let's say, and you just write down all the possibilities. You don't think about them critically. And then after you have them on the list, you can remove a bunch of them pretty easily. I used it to find my first job actually in mobile gaming with Pete Parsons, the then Vince, he was CEO of 
Bungie Studios for a while. Um, pretty legendary guy in console gaming. So that worked out for what, me well. And, and you did move to Tennessee. So I think the other thing I want that I think is a little bit of your secret sauce that is that you seek out and do things that you love, right? It's not, I know you said burnout, but I'm going to question that because you and I have this similar is like from the outside, it's like, calm down, you know, you're gonna get burned out. But inside of us, we're like, this is the thing we love. So it's like playing baseball every day. Like I'm not going to get sick of this. Right. Do you think that's something that you do is you seek out these things that you love to do? And that kind of propels you and helps you just kind of think about all the time. I think I gravitate towards things I love and I think I find it easier to obsess over them. So I think it just sort of happens more naturally because you know, it took me 38 years to get into the sports industry, you know, and the sports media industry. And, and that's, and if you like, you knew me in college, like what, what did I love? Right. I love playing Madden. I mean, seriously, you yes. know, I, I was obsessed. <laughs> I was, you know, Madden, fantasy oh football, playing rugby, Yankees and Red Sox. Like that was my obsession. Right. And yet I didn't, I didn't get out of college and say, I'm going to go try to find a way into the sports industry. And, and maybe that was a mistake. And maybe, maybe, you know, in hindsight, I should have done something like that. I, I, I thought about it a little bit more rationally. You know, I had, I had access, you know, how to get into the entertainment industry. So I took a class from a guy who at the time was a writer for the Sopranos. And, you know, he, frankly, he sort of, looked like me. He's like a, you know, Jewish guy from the town next to me in suburban New York. And I'm like, wait, I can, I can do that. I can have a career being a right. And that was, that was it, you know? And I said, okay, I'm going to go try. It felt practical and it felt interesting enough that I could obsess over figuring out entertainment. And then it, you know, it became a winding road. I wasn't a, a movie buff when I was in college. I watched movies like everybody ended up in the film industry and ended up going to film school because it felt it was this combination of, okay, practically, I can see how this becomes a career. And aspirationally, I think I can enjoy this. And I think one of the things that I also uh, have that, that is beneficial to this is I think I can like a lot of different things. You know, I think I could be really interested in a lot of different things. So, you know, I, maybe there's things that would just really burn me out and be very uninteresting. But honestly, if I was, if I had a challenge to, you know, scale the business of a paper mill and it was a really interesting challenge. And it was a, okay, this is an operational setup that needs to be optimized. And, and how do we open more factories? And what is the overall industry? Like, I, could, I think I could obsess over that, you know? And, and it's not sexy or that interesting on the surface. But, you know, if you have the ability to get your mind into a, a place of interest, then, then it's pretty magical. So, yeah, I, I guess I have been very fortunate in, term, I mean, in so many different ways. But in terms of the access I've had to to really sought after industries and, and eventually roles within those industries. But it's, it's really been more about, okay, is, is there, is there a gap that I can shoot through here? You know, and if so, let's go hard after it. And if not, let, let's keep looking for that gap. Well, obviously if you had your pick, you would have been playing for the Yankees. So, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a given, right? So <laughs> Pro- probably center field because I would have wanted to have overlapped with cheater and, you know, I wouldn't have taken shortstop. So I would have, yeah, I would have, I would have been the real number 12 and it would have been retired probably by now, but my kids still think my kids saw, watching the Super Bowl. I'm actually like, dad, God, you could still do it. You can still do this, dad. I mean, that's Tom, Tom Brady. He's what is he? 42, 43. Like you got a couple years. You got five more years. Go. 
I mean, it was a serious yeah. comment from my, from my son, Mickey. He's like, you should, you should do this. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks so much again to our guest, Henry Lowenfels, for sharing his expertise with us. The book we mentioned today is The Psychology of Intelligence Analysis by Richard J. Heward Jr. for the CIA's Center for the Study of Intelligence. If you have any burning questions or any ideas for future guests, please shoot Brett an email at brett.novak at liquidandgrit.com. Again, that is b-r-e-t-t dot n-o-w-a-k at liquidandgrit.com. We hope you gained some valuable tools from today's episode, and if you did, consider subscribing to our show or sharing it in all the places you like to share stuff. So until next time, here is a few more expert predictions from Henry to show us out. I think the Yankees win the World Series in six this year. Uh, I think uh, in, in four years, the Knicks will be back. Uh, quickly is looking amazing. Um, 